0: Do you know that most therapists, doctors, and gynecologists learn little, if anything, about sexual desire or pleasure in their training? Pretty striking, right? As sexologist and therapist Cindy Darnell, who you're about to hear from, put it, desire is a unique thing in each of us. It's like a fingerprint. And low desire is the most common reason people seek out help from sex therapists. So if you're in such a space right now, know that you are far from alone. And there's a lot you can do to shift things for the better. I recently chatted by Skype with Cindy, who you may recall from an episode called Curvy Body Sex and Sexual Self-Inquiry from June 2017 with Elle Chase, or from her cameo in the live episode from The V Club. She launched a program called The Desire Series I wanted you all to hear about. We talked not only about the program, but also about sexual desire as a whole, why the therapy model may not be ideal when you're struggling there, and more. She also shared a bit about her own personal experience, realizing her typically rich desire had gone missing for a time. In other words, she understands these challenges from personal and professional experience. This topic is always timely, but especially so now. As I mentioned last week, our own Dr. Megan Fleming is cooking up something for the new year that may be a game changer if you've been struggling or feeling in a rut or disconnected sexually. I've been polling folks for questions related to desire and we will weigh in for one listener later today. First, my conversation with the always insightful Cindy Darnell. I really wanted to chat after I heard about your Desire series. It sounds really fascinating. You've been sharing a lot of content online. It's an online course. Uh, One thing that really struck me was you said that you're sharing information you didn't learn in therapy school. What That's did you, right. What did you mean by that? Well, because sex and pleasure and and you know the
1: really kind of rich and exciting parts of sex and pleasure, they're really not things that are respect, taught in school. And because my degrees are across therapy and sexology, so I've sort of got the double stream of education. And interestingly, in both contexts. Passion and lust and pleasure are not really things that come up a lot in in tertiary education uh, for therapists as a separate field to sexologists. So sexology training, you get a little bit more of that. But even still, in sexology training, the focus tends to be on how we are, um, you know, on how we are similar and, and what – what are the traits that all humans have in common? And this is useful information. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to desire and when it comes to um, you know therapy and how we apply that kind of information, this is the kind of stuff that is not taught in schools. And that's why when many of us, and this is my experience, you know, 13 years ago, as, as a sex therapist as I am now, 13 years ago, I completely lost my libido, August, you know, and I was in a situation where I had been in a relationship for a couple of years. And I just had absolutely no interest in sex when my entire adult life, sex had been so important to me and all of a sudden it was like somebody had pulled the rug out from under me and it was just gone nothing I had no interest and so that was really rare for me I mean in the capacity that you know me as a, as a friend and a colleague you know I'm a quite a highly sexual person so to go from all that to nothing was just like what the I didn't know what happened so I went to see therapists myself different kinds of You know, psychologists and counselors and um, different, you know, talk therapists, basically. And none of them gave me the information that I now have, which is what I've put in the desire series, because in therapy school, whichever form of therapy, you don't learn this kind of stuff. You don't learn the techniques to help you ignite your desire and ignite your own flames. And so this is why so much of the information I have learned since that experience of mine 13 years ago, in conjunction with science, I mean, I've researched what all of the information says about desire and lust and all of these things and, and all of the hypotheses, basically, about how these things work. And at best, these are all hypotheses no one has any absolute sure data about how desire works because it is such a unique thing in each of us it's like a fingerprint Mm. and so yeah you know we all have fingers so that's similar (laughs) yeah (laughs) but but apart from that our fingerprints and, and our our makeup is really unique to each of us. And so this is the thing about desire that often gets overlooked in clinical se- sessions, in therapy school, and with clients and, and just with people who are looking to discover where where desire comes from in them, in their particular case, in their particular context. And while there are things that are similar, According to your orientation, according to your age, according to your gender to a degree, um, and according to your experience, according to whether or not you're in a relationship, all that kind of stuff. And some, also some genetic inheritance things, things about how your brain functions, how you're wired, that informs some of it too. Oh. The part that actually has the most control is the part that gets left out, and that's the part that the Desire Series fills,
0: this is so fascinating to me. It sounds like because desire is so individual, your role as a therapist, and when you're working with people, coaching, consulting, teaching, it must be very much about helping the person discover their own, what do you call them, desire blocks? So, I mean, it's more like a desire blueprint. And I mean,
1: pe- we the part of the desire series goes into blockages for sure. But I think one of the things, and this is why, In this context of working with desire I tend to really move away from a therapeutic model and the reason that I do that is not because the desire series is not therapeutic it's certainly helpful but therapy comes from the position of solving problems or looking at what's wrong this is wrong that's wrong what I like to do in all of the work that I do and my work around desire is is no different I like to look at what's right. I like to look at what works as opposed to what doesn't work. Because when our focus is solely on everything that's wrong, it doesn't allow us to start to develop a relationship with curiosity, mm. to develop a relationship with what ignites our pleasure and our fun. Nobody feels excited about sex when they're miserable and you know, rattled with problems. So part of the part of the teaching of the desire series is actually teaching people how to think about sex too because we're not taught how to think about it we're taught you know by osmosis our social messages tell us that sex is something that's natural and it just happens to us and it's just all there and while the instinct may be natural the execution of it the skill the joy the the you know learning to become more engaged with it, these are these things are skills because everything in our society is geared to lead us away from pleasure, to lead us away from that kind of erotic exploration. We're told that it's bad and dangerous. And these messages are so strong in all of us that over time, by the time we hit adulthood, we have been dealing with 15, 20, 30 years of this deconstructed messaging that tells us that we are undeserving of pleasure, that we are undeserving of desire, and that depending on how we were socialized, the only way that we can experience sex is in service to another person.
0: That's so true. If you've been listening here for a while, think how many people respond to questions about what they learned about sex and sexuality early on with something negative. Nearly everyone, right? So, Many of us learned in some way that sex is something we give. It's like a currency. I imagine you have some of your own memories about this too. I asked Cindy how that kind of messaging can impact our lives moving forward.
1: And if that's not part of your erotic blueprint, if being in service is not actually what turns you on, while it does for some people, it doesn't for everybody, then we're left with nothing. And so the whole gist of the Desire Series is to help people go through a step-by-step process. And this is a process that I've led myself through also of how to work out not what's wrong, but what's right. And where is your truth? Where is the path to lead you there? Because you can spend hours, uh, you sorry, you can spend months and years, an hour a week in a therapist's chair talking about all the things that are wrong Mm -hmm. in a sex context. But if you don't spend any time thinking about what's right, you're never going to get to where you want to go.
0: That's so powerful. I could, I can really see that and feel that because as we think about the influences that, work against our desire, it feels crappy. I mean, it's empowering to yeah. know that in some ways, because I think healthy anger can be, for me, that's been a bit of a turn on to be like, you know, to resist the the social norms that we're supposed to be. Once you realize that, oh, it's it's not my fault, it can be empowering, but, but it's not a fun, sexy place to just be sitting in that space of like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a healthy thing to work through unpacking, you know, what the sort of the, the problems are from a social point of view. And so you have a, you know, so you can start to see yourself in context of the world around you that. And I think this is the other thing, too, is that we are told, again, by osmosis, that sex is something that because, again, it's part of this natural thing and that everybody, it just happens to everyone. This information is magically downloaded out of the ether. And when it comes to the right time, you just meet the right person. And it's all fabulous. I mean, how many of us have been told that, you know, story, um, only for us to not experience it that way. So understanding in context where our struggles come from is helpful. But the responsibility to move through that then becomes on shifting the focus. And this is what a lot of therapists are not trained to do. They're trained to help you understand why you feel the way you feel, but they're not trained to help you understand what to do. And this is especially true when it comes to sex. There's no training in therapy school about this.
0: That is really incredible that there isn't because it it is such a common common issue that we hear so much about and and most of us experience at some point. Could you share? Given that everyone's different, I know that there is no set answer of this is the positive step and this is the curiosity that you should embrace. Like it's different for everyone. But is there? Mm. Could you share an example of something that maybe it's an um, an example without sharing the name, but somebody that you've worked with or somebody who's taken your course and these kind of layers start lifting in a positive way? What are some of the positive? Steps that might surprise people that have helped in improving desire, increasing desire? Mm.
1: So, one of the first things that comes to mind is the idea that we have to be in the mood for sex to. To happen, so we more commonly will describe this as uh, people will say, "I want to have spontaneous sex. I just want to, you know, I just want it to be amazing and spontaneous." And when we look again at the research that shows us that while some people do experience a desire for spontaneous sex some of the time, those people are in fact in the minority, and. It's also not a permanent state that how we respond to erotic cues, how we respond to, to desire, is not necessarily something that's permanent. How we are during a particular phase in our life or with a particular person doesn't necessarily mean we're like this all the time. So the idea of having a particular style or a particular way of being is useful. It helps us as a template to understand ourselves, but also in any given moment, that can change. So what is a more accurate measure of how we understand desire is to look at it through the lens of context. So what that means for folks listening is that when we know in context what turns us on, even if we are sort of sitting there thinking, mm, I know my partner really would like to have sex right now or some kind of, and when I say sex for the record, um, you know, I don't necessarily mean penis in vagina sex. It could be, you know, body rubs. It could be showering together. It could be all kinds of things. Um, when we're sitting there thinking, no, you know, I don't feel like having sex right now. That's fine. And, and, and no is, is a is a complete sentence. But there are also moments Where that initial resistance around sex, that no, can be something other than actually a no. It can be a habit. It can be an ingrained condition. And so many of my clients have said to me, you know, I want to want sex again, but I just don't. So that little nugget of knowledge about I want to want it, this is really useful because that in itself is a kind of incentive for sex And so while we're waiting for the mood, you know, the horniness to descend upon us from the heavens and oh, all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, my God, I need that cock right now. Um, If that doesn't happen for you, then welcome. You are in the majority of people on the planet because (laughs) – most people don't experience sex like that. Well, they might experience it like that sometimes, you know, occasionally. And usually, again, that's in the beginning of a relationship. But once you're embedded in a relationship longer than, you know, three weeks, um, that tends to happen less frequently. Yet we tend to think that that is normal. Yeah. Guess what? It's not normal. So it's not abnormal either, let me say that. But it's just not the thing. And so when we get so caught up in waiting for this horniness to descend upon us and it doesn't come. And then we think, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to disengage from sex because clearly I've lost my libido. And what I've discovered is that that is not true. And it's exciting news, August. It's really exciting because when we understand that that story of I have to be in the mood Before the desire comes, when we understand that that is not true, it opens up a whole lot more options to us in the same way that, you know, you get home from work on a Friday night and you're tired, but you promised your friends you'd go and meet them for a happy hour or you promised your friends you'd go and meet them at the cinema to see a new movie. But you get home and you're like, oh, God, all I really want to do is just have a glass of wine and put my feet up. And that's fine. You can do that. Or you can recognize that potentially after 10 minutes of putting your feet up on a glass of wine or maybe a shower, get out of your work clothes. And then you make yourself go and do the thing that you actually do really want to do. Within 10 or 15 minutes of arriving at said place at the party or wherever you said you would be, guess what? the mood comes to you. So it is one of those things that sometimes we actually have to start doing the thing and then the mood comes later. So that whole idea that mood comes first and then we, and then we do the action, in the Desire series I'm really interested in flipping that script around and saying, well, let's see what happens. If we start first – can the, can we change the mood after? And in a lot of cases, that is what happens for people. And I think that this is a really important thing to talk about when we start talking about desire.
0: Yes, because it seems that people have so much shame around feeling like they're supposed to be instantly turned on. Right, right. <laughs> And that visual you gave me of this fairy coming down from the heavens with like the libido fairy (laughs) is kind of amazing. Um, It's so, it's so true. And, and I think too, because I've called it the Gray's effect. I I love Grey's anatomy. So Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not shaming the show in any way, but the, um, that show in particular, you know, because you don't have time in Hollywood to do in a show a full sex scene or it's the whole show sometimes. So it happens <laughs> okay. in like 20 seconds and, and they just close the door and everything is turned on and ready and aroused and the clothes barely, barely open, just one little hole. And they both completely are in euphoric, orgasmic bliss within, you know, 10 seconds, um, yeah. which is kind of like that fairy Exactly.
1: It's exactly the thing. And so this is, you know, we've all been, these are the only models of sex we're ever shown. If we're shown that, which is a sort of a PG version of it, or, you know, we see porn, but most of us smart thinking folks recognize that porn is made as entertainment for the eyes. It's not actually supposed to be sex education in a conventional sense. So if we don't go and seek out information about sex that's actually helpful and meaningful we are left with these storylines that come from Grey's Anatomy that come from porn even actually to a degree that come from much more innocuous sources like I would say you know Pixar and Disney about stories that when you find the one everything just unfolds Mm -hmm. and it's almost you know it's supposed to be effortless when you find the one and You know, in my life, August, I've found several ones.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the ones.
1: (laughs) Ones. And it's never been effortless. I mean it's effortless, you know, a little bit in the beginning. Right. But actually, the amount of effort that I have to put into dating, you know, making sure that my hair is just so and I don't have lipstick on my teeth and, you know, I've got my underwear on that doesn't have the holes in it and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's effort. And so when we're in a longer term relationship where the lipstick on the teeth tends to matter less, which is great, but there, there it comes at a price when it when it comes to eroticism. So, It's not to say that you have to be looking perfect and and going back to 1950s sort of housewife values. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there is something about all of us putting in effort, all genders putting in effort in order to breathe life into a lagging sex life that actually does bring it back to life again. That's one of the other things that I talk about a lot in the Desire series is that relationships are alive, passion is alive, sex is alive, yet we treat it like it's a static monolith. We treat it like it's just this thing that's, you know, we take it for granted. It's just going to be there because that's just how it is. And the truth is that anything that's alive needs nourishment. And if we don't take the time and the effort to nourish our relationships, nourish our sex life, what's going to happen to it? going to shrivel away it's going to die just like anything that's alive if you have a pet or a plant and you don't feed it it's gonna it's gonna perish sex and relationships is no different yet again we are not taught about it that way we're told through a narrative of you just find the right person and everything's going to be fabulous and it's just not true
0: yeah yeah absolutely it's it's so true and I love what you said about really having a practice you've said that libido is something we should practice. And I've heard
1: mm-hmm.
0: many times, you know, that scheduling sex, for example, could be kind of a practice. Masturbation, yeah. you can have a masturbation practice. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've really heard anybody else talking about libido as something we practice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a practice in that it's it's a
1: relationship with the world around you. It's not something that is innate in so far as it's in terms of its development. So I think the part that is innate is that we all have access to that within us in the same way that breathing is innate. But most of us don't actually know how to breathe to our full advantage. Most of us don't actually use our breath to to its full advantage it's not until you actually learn how to breathe when you become an athlete or a meditator or a singer or anything that requires you to actually move around a little bit um, then you learn how to breathe so yes breathing is innate but there is actually a skill and a knack to, to using your breath to your advantage and libido is the same so yes it's innate but if you don't develop your technique and skills and strategies on how to expand it and work with it it's just going to sit there like a you know like just like a blob and then you wonder well why don't i have a good relationship with my libido and it's like well you got to learn how to use it you know you got to use it or lose it and when we're younger and we're first discovering sex and we've got our first partner and everything's exciting and it's like, woo, you know, or we have that first flush of a first date. Maybe we're older and we're, and we're dating and the, you know, a lot of folks are in all kinds of age groups and, and dating. So it's not just a young person thing, but there is something about the youth of a person or the youth of a relationship that tends to ignite that. And what we know from science is that that comes from our brain's capacity to be curious and to, to, and to be interested. And so the brain provides an incentive through dopamine. That's what dopamine does. It doesn't actually give us pleasure. A lot of people think dopamine is about pleasure. It's actually about incentive. So when that incentive is there, we are curious about somebody. We're curious about ourselves. We're, we're longing to feel more more of a connection to someone. But once that incentive starts to fade and the dopamine starts to recede, which happens to all of us, that's a that's a biochemical thing. There's not a whole lot we can do about that. That's when our bodies start to flatline around sex and that peak experience or that peak kind of feeling that we had in the beginning, that's the part that drops and that's the part we start looking for again. And so we'll start to interpret that you know as as humans we're meaning makers so we we put a spin on these things and we put a story on it and we say oh well you know if this person was really supposed to be my person then I wouldn't be feeling like this or if this relationship was supposed to work out surely I'd want to be with them all the time that's not true there's it's possibly part of the reason you know if if you're if you don't if you sort of fall out of lust or you fall out of liking your partner and it's a new relationship then maybe maybe there is an indication that that is not the right relationship for you but if you feel like in so many other aspects the relationship is worth saving and it's worth persevering with yet you're noticing you're the one struggling with libido it's helpful to recognize that this could actually just be a brain response, not something that you necessarily have conscious control over. But the good news is that you can control your mind. You can't necessarily control your brain, but you can control your mind. You can control your thoughts. You can control your actions. You can control your behavior. And this is the part that becomes the practice. And so learning how to have a relationship with our libido as a practice like yoga, like learning how to paint or draw or cook. It's something that we do on repeat in order to get better at it and to understand it more. This is where having those skills and strategies and having a, you know, having having a program like the Desire Series to help pull you through that, to keep you on track and to keep you on target with what you're experiencing and how to how to move through to the next level once you've mastered one little part of it. Where Where's the next technique? Where's the next skill and where do we go from here? Mm. Does that make
0: sense? It does, yes, right. completely. That that resonates with me because I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed or lost even when you start to kind of get a grasp on that, that that's the approach you want to take is curiosity. Right. Like where do you even start and having, right. having support. And as you were talking, I think, and I think listeners too will probably be, you know, thinking of their own relationships and their history and yeah. and what you said about that it's a myth that spending all your time with someone, like wanting to spend all your time with someone is, <laughs> you know, the ideal and the most romantic, exciting thing in the world. And that's how, what should feel great. That, I know for me, my, like the more, like the relationships I've had that have been the most exciting and fulfilling and and I think healthy and vibrant have really been where there was a lot of independence in a, in a way where, Mm. you know, we're cultivating our own, we have our own lives. Like it's not, there's something very wonderful. And I, I think, I mean, it sounds like what, what you're getting at um, in some ways is how important it is to fuel our own curiosities completely, not even in relation to like, okay, I want to improve my libido. I want to have more desire, for my partner, with my partner, like, but actually in, in life as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's having a
1: relationship with libido is like having a relationship with passion. It's Mm -hmm. having a relationship with, with being alive. And that is, I think, again, one of the things that gets overlooked and for, you know, what we learn in, in therapy school and then in sexology school, in sexology school, Desire is looked at through a lens, really, of of kind of chemicals and hormones and and different kind of age brackets and different sort of cultural and, and racial divides and restrictions. But mostly the research from that perspective hasn't really yielded much information, which sometimes makes me think perhaps they are not the questions we should be asking. And then when we flip it and we look at it through a much more esoteric lens and think, well, if it's not got anything to do with physiology or not nearly as much perhaps as we thought it did, what is it then and how is it that with a few tweaks and a few of the right kind of lines of questioning, we can actually change our entire trajectory with something that we once upon a time thought happened to us, that actually it doesn't happen to us. It's something that we drive. We drive it ourselves. And I think that's really one of the biggest things to understand about sex is that it's not a drive in the way that sleeping and drinking water is a drive it's something that where we are driving it we are the drivers of the chariot so we get to do we get it to do what we want it to do it's not it doesn't do us we do it but yep. we've never been taught that
0: yeah it's true it's true and and that concept of having a relationship with your libido has such a a loving Compassionate um, yeah. feeling, which is so refreshing because mm. because these discussions and these, you know, when you hear from someone with a question who's really struggling, you hear a lot of pain and a lot of heartache yeah. and shame uh, for all kinds of reasons, including many that you've mentioned today that that aren't aren't anyone's fault. Um, but it's but it's really refreshing to think if I have a relationship with my libido, like what do I want it to look like? Right. And that's the
1: thing, you know, it makes me think about when I had had that experience of losing my libido after so many years of having what I thought was a very healthy and strong relationship with my libido for it to be gone. And the thing I think that upset me the most, well, apart from, you know, not being interested in sex, which was always a thing that I loved, that bothered me. But mm, <laughs> what also bothered me Was that I felt like I'd lost my relationship to myself, Mm. that I had lost a really fundamental connection to a part of me that I couldn't get back. Obviously, I did get it back. And a lot of the Desire series is about that. It's not about my personal story. I don't go on about myself that much in it. But it is really about the the lines of questioning and, and the paths of research that I took both through science and clinical sexology and also through story and also through just working with hundreds and hundreds of clients who come and see me about this stuff. This is the number one problem that people seek out sex therapists for. Mm. It's because it's just so pervasive and it does, it, it it stands to reason that because this is such a common problem it's highly likely that there are not all of these defective people out there. (laughs) What it actually means is that we as a society, we are the ones who have it wrong because when we're not actually listening to what's going on, the way we perceive it is what causes the problem. So the desire series is about giving folks a pathway to perception of desire that is actually going to be helpful and useful and reliable and, Sometimes we don't want to think about sex as reliable. It's like thinking about, you know, a sturdy pair of sensible walking boots. But when we can have a reliable relationship (laughs) with desire, it means we get to turn it on and off on cue. And that is really exciting.
0: That is such good news that it feels, (laughs) as you said, so needed because it's ironic that it's such a common concern for people and that people tend to feel so isolated Mm -hmm. when they're in it. So if people do want to work with you and learn from you, how can they get involved with the Desire Series?
1: So they just need to go to my website, which is CindyDarnell.com, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L, and then follow the online courses tab, and everything will be revealed from there. That's where the permanent home of the Desire Series is.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you.
1: It's always a pleasure to
0: talk to you. I love it. Thanks again, Cindy. If her insight resonated with you, find a direct link to her Desire series in the show notes. Before I share this week's listener question, I want to let you all know about a huge sale my new friends at Beducated are having this Black Friday. All of their courses are 60% off, making it the absolute best time to buy them. November 22nd to November 30th, get their courses on female orgasm, Tantric, Massage, and more, at this special discount, head to beducated.com or click the link in the show notes to learn more or start shopping. This week's question comes from T, who wrote this for Dr. Megan. My partner and I have been together for 15 years. We love each other, have an active social life together, and enjoy each other's company. But we don't have sex very often. It's become the thing we don't discuss. The one time I tried bringing it up... It got really awkward. I vacillate between feeling okay and where we are sexually and negative emotions. I'm not sure if I just feel insecure about this because of messages like must have sex once a week or whatever, or if we are really missing something. We have friends who seem really adventurous sexually and it's easy to compare. The sex we do have is wonderful when it happens, so that's something, right? What advice do you have? T? T, thank you for this question. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say.
2: T, there's so much in what you just asked that I could probably break it down into several questions, and I'm going to do my best to tie it into this one and not get too long-winded um, because there's really honestly a lot to say, and thank you so much for asking it. You know, the first is it's so fascinating to be together 15 years that um you're not having these conversations. In fact, as you're saying, the one time you brought it up that it got awkward. And of course, I always say we never start as expert and nobody likes to feel uncomfortable. But I often say, in a sense, go adolescent on it. Uh, We all know that the growth is in the discomfort. And so, you know, I think it's important that you're recognizing, even though you're having wonderful sex, which I want to get back to that too, because it's awesome. But that um, in the context, somehow you don't know how to explore or ask for more or talk about it. And so part of me wants to just, of course, normalize that because I think it, it, for many people, it's a challenging conversation and as human beings that we are. We like to avoid uncomfortable conversations or ones, as I said earlier, we don't have expertise in, and therefore it's going to maybe come out awkward and it not feel so great. But again, as, um, sort of from an Imago perspective, you know, uh, Conflict equals opportunity and opportu- and the growth opportunities that they are. Um, and I think most people associate hard conversations, unfortunately, not with growth opportunities, but with potential conflict. And so that's why they're avoided. So first, if I can debunk the fact that, um, listen, they may be uncomfortable conversations, but you'll get more expert the more that you have them. And there's so many things you can start with. Like a little one is asking for help. Like, I really want to talk to you about our sex life. And I really don't know how to do it. Can you help me? Right? Like easy as that. We're just sort of putting in the space like there's something that's so hard for me to talk about. And, you know, but I really see the possibility, right? You know, focusing so much, not on any disappointment or frustration, but most importantly upon the wish, the longing. And can we create a shared vision? Um, and this is so incredibly important because, you know, so often I ask women what gives them pleasure, and the first thing I hear is they don't know. So these conversations are critical to first, you know, exploring your own what gives you pleasure, but then how do you bring it up and bring it into your relationship with your partner? Um, the other piece I just want to refer to quickly is the comparison trap. You know, whether it's a, a, a statistic um, in terms of, you know, what frequency people are having sex. You know, I used to memorize the data from the national social health and life survey until I realized people were really wondering what is quote-unquote normal based on you know, a bell curve distribution or an average. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't really matter what works for anybody else. It's what matters for you and your relationship. You are your own expert. And so, you know, it doesn't matter what your neighbors are having or not having and what they say they're having or on social media may not be what it really looks like. Do not disturb yourself with that. Stay in your own lane and think about what is it that you want for yourselves. And you know and the third part is that I wanna just sort of highlight is when sex is wonderful wow, then why isn't it happening more often? And it reminds me of so many clients who say they avoid, there are a lot of reasons that they don't have sex. And then to your point, when they do, they're like, ah, that felt good. And the exhale, it feels nice. And I think the biggest reason that they struggle, and this may be true for you, is not recognizing the difference between um, both spontaneous and responsive desire, as well as creating conditions for sex. Um, So just quickly, desire doesn't always come from a place of wanting. It can come from a place of, it's not on my radar, say cold engine, but if I'm open and receptive or willing to touch, it's like you caress my hair and it's stroking my body. And it's like through the body and that feeling, the body's like, it's a yes, it's a green light. And then the arousal kicks in and then the desire. So I think it's always important. You may not feel in the mood, but it's like, what's one small thing you might feel like you could say yes to. Um, And the other part of that Is also recognizing the conditions. Foundation of arousal is relaxation. And, you know, the first condition is rested and relaxed. So many people are running exhausted on overwhelm. Like literally they sit down and they fall asleep. And so, you know, it's really having to prioritize, you know, for sex to be part of your life in the way that spontaneous organically would feel really amazing. Um, And, you know, that's my big thing great life, great sex. So it really is an opportunity to prioritize the conditions that where those more organic feelings are going to emerge. So I know I said a lot, um, but I love this question and there's so many angles to tackle it from, but I want to leave you with, do not compare yourself to anyone else. It's what feels right to you. I would say, get comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's the growth edge. Um, and you know, think of it as fun or sport or game to be like, really proud of yourselves when you have uncomfortable conversations, because I think that's awesome. And it takes amazing courage. And, you know, the last is just always to remember, you know, when anything's pleasurable, great is a green light. But I think, you know, it's important. We, you know, don't foreclose on imagination. As I say that there's always more and more is possible, you know, we're only limited by our ideas, right. And our thoughts. So this is the one lifetime that you get To me, monogamy and committed relationship is a safety net to, you know, push boundaries and explore areas of pleasure. And so, you know, I would hope in some level you at least prioritize trying that on. And as I say, try, try again to see whether or not this is something you both really want to invest your time and energy into. So as always, would love to hear how it goes.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she said about creating the conditions for sex and embracing your normal I promise you, there are so many people out there having the same amount or less sex than you're having, and any amount is totally fine. I love that the sex you're having is wonderful. It's also okay to not have it more often if you don't want to, if those negative emotions are only about the comparison trap. I think that's something that only you and your partner can answer. I'd rather have awesome sex occasionally, personally, than frequent like so-so sex, if that makes sense. And those vulnerable conversations can really, really pay off. So I hope you have more of them. I'm wishing you all the best. To make sure you don't miss out on Dr. Megan's Pleasure and Desire Challenge that's coming up, sign up for her email list or send her the word pleasure in the box at her website, greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash contact. Find a direct link in the show notes, or you can also click the link to shop at Beducated and find Cindy Darnell's wonderful Desire series. My books are also discounted on Amazon right now if you're looking for fun holiday gifts. Girl Boner will help guide you through your own sexual empowerment journey. And Girl Boner Journal is full of true stories and writing prompts to help you take that work deeper. You can use them together or separately. And speaking of today's topics, both have stories and writing exercises related to arousal, desire, and sex frequency. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazzal, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.